Well, good morning, church. Good to see you guys today. My name is Rick, if I've not had the chance to meet you yet, and I get to serve as the executive pastor at Grace, which means I get to be at different campuses at different times and kind of help behind the scenes with logistics and then every once in a while fill in and preach. So uh, I picked the right weekend to preach this week. Trey got the no air conditioning weekend, and I got the air conditioning weekend, so thank you, Trey. Uh, But you know, in general, I just want to say it's been a little while since I've been out here, and I'm always so encouraged when I come back in to see what God is doing here. Uh, We have our Tuesday staff meetings, and I get to hear from Clint and Trey uh, and Carrie. Um, and Kyle about what God is doing here, but it's always fun to be on the campus and to see what God is doing. And just kind of in general, give you guys an update where we're at for the year. Grace right now at each of our campuses is seeing about a 35 to 45% growth year over year. So that's not collectively, that's at each individual place. And so it's good to see God bringing new people into the family of grace. It's good to see continually people taking their next step toward Christ, toward baptism. Um, We just celebrated baptism. You guys have baptism coming up in a few weeks here as well. Uh, We'll be doing that again at all campuses in the fall. And so I'm just really encouraged by what God is doing and just in general, uh, especially with this campus. And um, I don't know if you love Clint as much as I love Clint, um, but I put Clint down as one of my best hires ever. Um, And so you can disagree or whatever you want, but tell him, not me. All right. Um, But uh, we want to give him some time off. So he and Gene were celebrating their anniversary this week. They were down in the Keys and they'll be back next weekend. But, you know, he has been such a great addition to the team and such a strong leader here at the campus. And so we're so pleased with what he's doing and how God is using him here. But this weekend, we do want to continue our house rule series and look at this topic of constant innovation and that we are people who are continually trying to reach people who are far from God. And in order to do that, we have to do two things well. One, we have to hold on to belief. And then the other is we have to continually change the way we are presenting belief and the way we are engaging with people. And so I wonder how many of you know that things change, right? If you don't know that yet, just hold on, all right? Uh, it, it will get there. But, but we are people that begin to realize that things change. In fact, I think it was my junior year of college that someone said to me, change is the only constant. I think that was the first time I heard that statement. Um, and that has just proven itself true over and over and over again. And so I just want to do a little uh, test. I want you to think back 10 years ago, all right? 2009, where were you? What job did you have? What city were you living in? What house were you living in? Who were the significant people in your life at that time? 2009. And just think about that versus today. Right? How many of you have someone in your life now that you cannot imagine living without that in 2009 you didn't even know they existed? Okay, right. Uh, how many of you are in the exact same job now that you were in in 2009? All right, there's a few of you. How many of you are in the same house that you were in in 2009? Okay, How many of you have all the same relationships in the same job in the same house that you were in 10 years ago? (laughs) All right, there's like one of you, all right? Um, You know, in 2009, just remember, we were just coming out of what the economy had collapsed, right? We were recovering from that. Uh, In 2009, you probably did not yet own an iPhone. If you did, you were the very early adopter. Um, Some of you probably had never sent your first text message in 2009, Like, you probably sent more text messages last week than you sent in all of 2009. (laughs) Most likely, all right? Uh, If you did send text messages in 2009, you probably did one of two things. Unless you're that early adopter iPhone user, you slid your phone up after flipping it sideways so that you could press the keyboard, right? Or you hit the seven four times to get an S. Like one of two things, like so, so things are different. Things are changing, all right? In 2009, the Orlando Magic was worth following, right? Like, and now it's going, ah, maybe, maybe, all right? Uh, Orlando City Soccer, we didn't know what that was or why anybody would want to watch soccer anyway. 
so, so things are changing, times are moving. And so the question for the church then is, how do we engage with the fact that times are changing? And it's unique and interesting that what happens is the world changes, business changes, your life changes, and yet sometimes we come to the church and we think nothing inside the church should ever change. Like it's the one place that we think nothing is allowed to change because then that would be anathema, heresy, the world's falling apart, right? But you go to work and everything is different. You go home and everything is different. You go to the store and everything is different. Everything is constantly new and improved and better. I want you to just do a a, a homework, all right? Walk around Walmart, Target, your favorite store this week and look for how many times, how many products say new and improved on them, all right? Everything is new and improved. Charmin, new and improved. Like, I think it's doing the same thing it's always done, right? (laughs) But now with ripples, okay? Um, Saw a bottle this week in the store of cleaner that said the original formula, but new and improved. Like the original formula, but new and improved. So the world is continually saying, how do we think about and innovate continually and constantly so that we can make ourselves better? And most of that is what? About making more money and increasing sales. That's what most people are thinking. Why do we improve? We have the gospel of Christ, which is the eternal impact on people's souls. And so we need to be asking ourselves the same question. How do we become new and improved without losing that original formula, if you will? You know, we are in a state now where information is doubling at this rapid rate. And so and, uh, there's a study done in 1980s on how long it took the totality of human information to double. Um, and so they surmised that from the year one AD all the way up to 1500 is what it took for information to double. So 1,500 years, one to 1,500 for human collective, all of our knowledge to double. It went then from 1,500 to 1,750. So it went from 1,500 years to double to just 250 years to double. And then from 1,750 to 1,900 to double. So down to 150 years. So by the time I was in college, they were saying that the average it was taking for human knowledge to double was every 13 months. That was about 20 years ago. Right, anybody want to take a guess of how often human information doubles now? Every 12 hours. Every 12 hours, our collective knowledge doubles because of all of the sources of information, all of the study that we're doing. And so we're at this place where everything is going to be different continually and always, and that's the reality that we live in. And so we have to stop and say, okay, this is where we live. This is what's going on. How do we take the scriptures of Christ? How do we take this unchanging truth and present it into the world in such a way that those who are far from God can be welcomed into the family of God? And so Paul talks to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about this. And I find it interesting because so often when we come into the church, we think, man, this is so new and exciting. And I'm like, just read Acts. Like it's the same thing all over again, right? In 2010, I was planting a church in Orlando. I was not yet a part of Grace. And I started talking to people about church planting. And they're like, what is this new and strange thing that you're doing, church planting? And I'm like, every church that ever existed was planted at some point. This is what Paul did. He traveled around the Roman world, starting planting new churches. This is what happened in colonial America, that as a city was founded, a church was planted. And so nothing that we're doing is new, but the way in which we're doing it is new. And so Paul here is talking about this idea of constant innovation and how he was taking the gospel in its infancy and in its earliest days to people. And even in that moment, he was having to present it in different ways to different groups of people. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, He's talking to the church here, and he says in verse 19, we'll start reading there. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And I want to just pause, because this verse, there's two truths I want you to see here. He says, 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So how many of you feel like you are free from everyone? Or how many of you feel like you are a slave to many, many people? Like you are trying to please them. Before you make a decision, you're going, what would he think? What would she think? What would they think? How many feel like, man, I've got to put the right picture on Instagram? Like it takes 600 photos to get one that is worthy of posting to the public, right? Why? Because I've got this image that I'm trying to uphold. And Paul says, I don't care what anyone else thinks. And when I am free from everyone, look what happened. I'm not a prisoner to them. So now as I free myself from their concern and I root my identity in Christ, which is the only way you get free from people, then I'm able to make myself a servant to others. And so if you want to serve people well, you have to break away from being enslaved to what they think about you. You have to root your identity in what Christ says is true about you. And in that freedom now, you're, you're able to serve people. And then he says this, that I might win more of them. And so Paul says two things. This He is free from people's opinions that enables him to serve them with the end goal of what? Of reaching more of them, winning more of them for Christ. And so sometimes I think we want to innovate because we want people to think we're innovative. Oh man, they're a cool thing. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's not the goal of innovation, right? We are not trying to innovate and be new and different. So people say, oh man, that's a cool church. We are trying to innovate and reach to reach people. And so the end game is helping people take their next steps toward Christ. And so everything that we do at Grace should be saying, how do we help people take their next steps toward Christ? And how do we better help people take their next steps toward Christ? And that's where the innovation comes. Then he goes on to say, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Again, the goal was what? I'm going to place myself under rules that I don't have to follow so that I can reach people who are also placing themselves under rules that they feel like they do need to follow. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. So again, that I might win those under the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. And I think as we read this today, I think my first thought was, man, how inauthentic. Right? We want everybody to be authentic. We are told, be yourselves, be who you were created to be, like you were born this way, and so man, you just live it up. And Paul says, no, that's not true at all. Paul says, I have found my identity in Christ, not in who I was born to be. I was born to be a slave to Christ. I have placed my identity in Christ, and as I find my identity in Christ, I can be to those under the law as those under the law, to those outside the law as those outside the law, to the weak, weak, to the strong, strong. And so I'm able to adapt who I am, and, and as I'm going to be to reach different people as long as what? As long as the core is, I'm identified with Christ. And so Paul says, as my identity is placed in Christ, I'm now suddenly free to present things differently, to engage differently, to react differently, to respond differently, to receive different things because I am under the law of Christ and not under all of these man-made desires, man-made laws. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want us to kind of back up and just start walking through this text and look at a couple things here that I think are really important for us as we think about this idea of reaching people for Christ, as we think of people uh, coming into the church, 
And so what I often find in the church is that when we innovate, we sometimes innovate not to say what best reaches more people, but what makes this easier for me. All right? We found that sometimes what we want to do is make life easy on us. All right? And sometimes as we're innovating, life becomes more difficult on us. Why? So that we can reach more people. Why don't you just look around the room real quick? Right, do you guys see all this pipe and drape? Do you know this takes time to put up every single week? And time to take down every single week. And some of you have been doing it for a long time. Thank you. you. Say, well, why in the world do we put up pipe and drape? Well, if we take down this drape, you know what's behind it? It's terrible. <laughs> Beautiful murals that are really distracting. And so we have this group of people who come in every week and we come into a school and we say, how can we innovate and change a room so that it is less distracting so that people can receive the gospel of Christ? You know what would be easy for us to do? Say, you know, pipe and drape doesn't matter. Take that stuff down. We don't mind the murals. And somebody walks in the door for the first time and they're like, that's interesting. What's that old iPhone up there for? Right, so we are continually asking ourselves not what is easy for us, but what is best to help people take their next steps toward Christ. You know what would be really easy to do? Just put your kids down there and let them watch a VeggieTale video. That would be awesome. Nobody has to prepare anything. Nobody has to cut out any crafts. We don't have to have GK Prep Club curriculum night uh, once a month where we cut out like 9,000 things. We don't have to have bins that we send to campuses. No one has to drive across town to pick it up. And the kids would have VeggieTales, man. What's better than VeggieTales? The gospel. Planted in their hearts in ways that they can understand it and receive it and grow. And so when we innovate, we don't innovate to say what is easiest for us. We innovate to say what is the best to help people take their next steps toward Christ? How do we best reach new people? How do we help those that are here take their best and next step toward Christ? And so Paul says, again, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. To the weak I became weak. And I read this this week and I thought, what, what does this actually look like? What does this even mean? Who were the Jews? Who were the Greeks? Who were those under the law? Who were those outside the law? Who were those who are weak? And so I began to think about Paul's life. Now what you need to know is that the Jews and the Greeks were two very different groups of people, right? The Jews are the people that we read in the Old Testament, the people of God, that God had set apart, that God had been working through for about 1,500 years at this point. These are the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the people that God had set apart. They ate differently. They had different stories. They had different heroes. They were people who, for their entire life, grew up kind of secluded from everyone else. And then there was the Roman invasion, and suddenly they are integrated in some way into society, and yet they are still trying to maintain their separation from the world. All right, who are the Greeks? How many of you read Greek mythology at some point in high school, or at least the Spark Notes? Right? Like, like they're these people who were multi-gods. They worshipped many gods. They were trying to please people. They were people known for their just sexuality and licentiousness. And they were people who were known for their debauchery. They were people known for their worldliness. And so Paul is now saying, how do we take the gospel of Christ, which is for all people, both to the Jews, who were the people that brought Christ to us and then rejected him, and also to the Greeks who care nothing about a mono. Uh, a monotheistic God, a single God. Uh, and so Paul, in Acts 17, I think we see this beautiful. So if you want to look over in Acts chapter 17, uh, a few pages back to your left, we see Paul go into the city of Athens, which is one of the Greek city-states known for its philosophy. 
right? And so in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them, talking about his uh, travel companions, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. Why? Because Paul's underarching aim was to what? Win people for Christ. And so as Paul is on this visiting, uh, he's, he's visiting the city of Athens and suddenly within him he is provoked because he's starting to see this idolatry around town. Right? He's starting to see all of these temples, he's seeing all of these statues, he's seeing people praying to and leaving gifts to uh, all of these false gods. And so Paul says he is provoked, he's angered, he's stirred up within him, he's passionately stirred um, about this. So what does he do? Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue. All right, well, what is the synagogue? The synagogue is the place that the Jews gathered. So he's angry and moved by the idolatry. And what does he do? He goes to the synagogue, which is the one place in the city where there's not idolatry. It's the one place in the city where they worship a single God. And you say, why in the world does he go to the synagogue? Well, it's the only place that Paul had an audience in that moment. So Paul goes to the one place that he can begin to take these ideas and begin to share them with the Jewish people. And then he starts to reason in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so you see in Paul this movement where he takes it inside the sacred space of the synagogue where they would receive him, where he could talk about a monotheistic God in a way that no one would push back on, no one would rail against him, but he had an audience with these people. And he began to talk about who Christ was to the people who knew of Yahweh God, but didn't know Jesus was his son. And so he begins to reason with them first, and then he moves into the marketplace which was the open-air place where everyone did business, transactions were happening. He, he began to reason with them in the marketplace, and look what happens. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these are the Greeks, also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Another said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took hold of him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, which is the place the pagan philosophers debated. So he went from the synagogue where the religious, monotheistic people would debate into the place that the pagans debated. How did he get there? By invitation. All right, I want you to see that as you begin to be stirred for people and you begin to have conversations with people, some are going to look at you and say, what is this babbler talking about? Shut up. Some are going to be interested and they're going to invite you into further and deeper conversations in places that you could not go on your own. So Paul had no right when he walked into Athens, provoked by the idols, to walk into the Areopagus and begin proclaiming Christ. So he does it in the avenue and the venue that he can. And because he's faithful there, God opens a door for him to do it into the place that he needed an invitation. And then look what happens. It says, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is like the original scrolling on Facebook right there. Right? All they did all day long was that they're telling or hearing something new. And so when Paul says something that sounds new to them, like, hey, we want to hear more from you. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens. Now remember, Paul is a Jew. Paul is a Pharisee. That means he was one of the most educated and trained men in his day. He better understood the Old Testament than any of us in this room would understand it. He was raised to know his birth, to know his lineage, to know all about his history. And he has this moment where he's persecuting Christians and God brings him away from persecuting Christians to become the leaders of the Christians. And now he is in not the Jewish world, but the secular world. And what does he say? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now he does something unusual. He begins to quote secular poets and he begins to quote pagan philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Right? Remember, he's in a city where every one of their gods has been uh, carved out of stone or gold, and he's walked through this. He says, we ought, because of what your philosophers say, we ought not think of ourselves as people who are uh, worshiping divine beings that are gold, silver, or stone as an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. But look at verse 34. But some joined him and believed. All right, but some joined him and believed. So what is Paul's goal? Paul said, I will make myself all things to all people so that some might hear. And so he goes into this city, he makes himself to the Jews a Jew, to the Greeks a Greek, and what happens at the end? Both Jew and Greek, some, both Jew and Greek, believe and begin to follow Christ. And so we see this reality, and so I think for us, we say, well, that's great, but where do we live? How do we take the gospel of Christ to people in such a way that they can understand? And I would say it's going to be different for everyone. We live in a very segmented society. Right? Even in Orlando as a city, and I know Oviedo thinks we're not even part of Orlando. I think of you as part of Orlando. I'm sorry. All right? Like, I was shocked. I talked to somebody a few years ago who moved from Oviedo to Orlando. They started attending the Orlando campus, and I met them for the first time. I introduced myself to them. I said, hey, are you new to the city? And they said, yes. And I said, wow, where are you from? And they said, we just relocated from Oviedo. I'm like, relocated? Like, I eat lunch in Oviedo sometimes. Like, I, like relocated. I, I, I don't understand. But, but in their mind, it was a relocation from one city to another city because they moved from Oviedo to Orlando. Right, right now, we have campuses meeting in Oviedo, Orlando, Winter Garden. Three very different, unique places. Some of you probably don't just even identify with Oviedo. Some of you are from Winter Springs. Some of you live in a subdivision, and you identify with that subdivision. Right, then beyond that, you have your interests... Like, people mock me because I know nothing about music whatsoever. And so I can't even talk to the worship team because they speak a whole other language. I walk into the room with the worship team at Grace Orlando, and I'm just like, mm, all right, I'm just going to keep walking, right? They judge me, I know, as soon as I walk in the room. Like, you guys speak droid, and I don't know what that means, so I'm just going to leave now, right? But, but we have all of these subsets, and I think if we're going to begin to reach people, it begins with the person that we feel like God's calling us to reach. And how do we get to know them? And how do we listen to their dreams and their hopes and things that they would like to see happen? When you begin to think about, man, where did we come from 10 years ago? Where do we want to be in 10 years? And so much of where we want to be in 10 years is going to shape our beliefs and our ideas and our dreams and our desires. And can I say if we take Christ out of that equation, we will do all kinds of things to try to reach and attain these goals. 
So everyone that you know has a desire and a dream and some great hope that they think, man, my life would be perfect if. If I found the right spouse, if I got the right job, if I made the right amount of money, if I drove the right car, if I lived in the right subdivision, if I, like, fill in the, like, everyone has these dreams. I think, this is the thing that would complete my life. But the reality is you get those things, and then what happens? Have you at one point thought, man, if I could just get married, life would be amazing. Be honest. Guys, this is a good time to raise your hand. I don't know, just, just <laughs> FYI. And then you got married, and what happens? Three days later, she uses your toothbrush. You're like, that's not okay. I've been married 20 years. It's still not okay, right? Like, and so all of these things that we put all of our hope in eventually collapse. And if my great hope is that this thing is going to fulfill me and deliver the ultimate desire of my life, what happens when it collapses? Where do we turn? And that is where we as Christians have moments to step in and say, hey, we know XYZ failed you. Let me tell you about someone who's not going to fail you. Or sometimes when they're dreaming, you know, if I could just get this thing, man, my life would be so complete. And you're able to say, can I give you another alternative, another narrative? That that is a wonderful thing and you should pursue that. But you know what? You're going to get it and it's probably not going to be everything that you think it's going to be. Okay, just walk in your closet, ladies, right? Like that dress that was the dress, like that old thing. That purse that was the purse to be the final purse, right? Like for last week. And so we have to be thinking, how are we innovating ourselves? How are we innovating what we do? And and I think Pastor David alluded to this in the video. We think about this with a closed hand and an open hand. Right? And so we say to reach people who are far from God, we hold a loose grip on our methods and a tight grip on our beliefs. Right? A loose grip on our methods and a tight grip on our belief. And so to navigate this well, here's what we have to decide. What goes in the closed fist and what goes in the open hand? And we got to get it right. Like we have to get that right or else we have problems. And so how many of you have ever been a part of a church or tradition that everything went in the closed hands? Two closed hands. We don't discuss anything. We don't change anything. We've always done it this way, and we will always do it this way. We will go to our grave doing it this way, and they soon do. All right? I grew up in a tradition like that. Everything went in the closed fists, and when you have two closed fists, man, it's good for fighting. And so that's what they do. We fight about everything. We fight about what translation of the Bible we read. We fight about what color we paint the the building. We fight about what color the pews are. We fight about what time church happens on. Like, Why? Why? Because everything has been placed in closed fist and everything is equal to everything else. And so the fact that I wear a black suit and black tie every Sunday can never change ever. Why? Because we put it in the closed fist right next to the blood of Christ. Does my dress live up to the same standard as Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Like what I wear on the 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 platform, is that the same? Is that equal to Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I hope all of you think no. If you think yes, you're in the wrong place. All right, just FYI, all right? Uh, No, no, why? And so what we're able to do is we're able to say, man, there are a few truths that we better hold tight to. Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. The scriptures are the final authority for our life. Uh, There is salvation in no one but Jesus Christ. 
Jesus was resurrected from the dead, born of the Virgin Mary. Right? There's a few things that we put in this closed hand, and then everything else we put in the open hand. So we put everything in the closed hand. Eventually, our church will die, fizzle out, be ineffective, and we'll close the doors. And maybe you've seen this, observed this, witnessed this in some churches. Everything goes in the closed fist, and so we fight about it. The, one of the churches that I worked at early on if, is, um, was an amazing church. Loved these people to death. I took our leadership team through this exercise where I brought an outside consultant in. And the consultant is somebody who comes from out, out somewhere else, and then he can tell you whatever he wants, and he gets to go home. Right? And so we brought this guy in, and he was, he was leading our leadership team, and he said, what are the sacred cows of this church? Like, what are the things that, man, nobody is allowed to touch? And they were like, we don't have any sacred cows here. We're amazing, wonderful people. And he said, well, that's interesting. I've never met a church like that before. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that's just who we are. And then it was like three sentences later, he said something about changing the building. And somebody said, yeah, we're, we don't change the building at our church. And he said, why not? Well, we've never changed the building at our church, and we don't have any plans to. And he said, so the building is a sacred cow. No, 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 no. He's like, so the building is, right? So two hands, everything in the closed fist, we fight about all of it. What's the alternative? You say, well, we'll just put everything in open hands. Right? And the paint color and the blood of Jesus. Take, take both of them if you like. It doesn't matter. Take it or leave it. And then what happens? We lose who we are. Like if we don't have some defining truths that define this is what Christianity is and this is who we are as a people and those things begin to just dissipate out of our hands, what happens? We don't have a church worth attending. Can I tell you, if Jesus Christ is not the son of God, let's go to brunch and drink mimosas. All right? Like... Like, what are we doing here? If Jesus Christ is not the risen Son of God and all we are doing is coming to a room and getting together to feel good about ourselves and more moral than everyone else, Paul says we're to be most pitied. But man, if Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, has authority for my life, if God has a plan that he has ordained from the beginning of time for me to live out and to engage in, is it not worth it? to gather as the people of God, to worship as the people of God, to be in community with one another, to sacrifice some of the joys that I think I might want in this life, to release those things so that the people of God can expand and the kingdom of God can be made known in Oviedo. Is that not worth it? And so to do that, we have to say, man, what are those beliefs we're going to put in this hand? And what are the things like, we're not going to, like, is there a rapture? I don't care. I hope. I, hope, I would love for it to be I don't want to live through seven years of terrible torture. But I'm not going to pull out my chart and debate with you on it. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? We'll go down swinging. Like, I'll take the sword for that. And so we just have to get the right things in the right hand. We have to know, what are we going to hold tightly to? What are the things we're going to hold loosely to? And look what Paul says, going back over to 1 Corinthians, how he ends. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, meaning the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. I think, man, as a church, do we not want to run the race as such a way that we would win? That we would win the most people. That we would see the most people come into the family of God. That we would baptize the most people that we would be welcoming the most number of people through our doors, that one day when we stand before God, he says, well done, Grace Church, well done. You've run the race well. You've invited people into the kingdom of God. You have discipled them well. You have loved them well. You have walked through hardships with them well. You've celebrated joys with them well. 
And I think to do that, we continually have to be saying, what are we doing new? What are we doing different? How are we engaging with people? How are we bringing them in? How are we loving them? And how are we teaching truth? Faithfully, every single week. And so I would say for grace, Pastor Dave said it, we're going to teach from the Bible always. We're going to hold to the truth of the Christian faith, but it's going to look different year after year, day after day, week after week. I say all the time, if you don't like things at Grace, just stick around. They'll be different next year, right? We don't mind trying something and say, well, that was terrible. Let's change that up and do it different next time. Uh, we've done that with baptism this year. We used to have baptism all together at the lake and it was wonderful and glorious and parking was terrible and it was hot and you had to hike 17 miles and bring a wagon. Like, you know, you only want to do that at the Amway Center, not at baptism, right? So we, would, we said, well, that's not really working. So, do you, so now you, you have it on the courtyard out here and the pictures and the videos that we see are the most amazing thing ever. It's wonderful. I walked onto your campus. There's this new tent out there. If you've not seen it, this says first time guest, stop here. Like that's an innovation, that Oviedo brought to Grace. And I walked up that, I want a tent at Orlando. Why don't we have a tent? Right? Every time I walk onto the campus, something is new, something is different. Why? Because we're continually saying, how do we better help people take their next steps toward Christ? Because that's who we want to be. We want to be people known for constantly innovating, not for the sake of innovating, but for the sake of reaching the most people with the gospel. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your grace and your love. Thank you for your church. Thank you, God, for just the opportunity to be with the Oviedo campus today and to know what you are doing here and to uh, see, God, people who are here now that were not here the last time I was here, to know, God, that there have been people who have been baptized who are taking their next steps towards you, God, to know that in just a few weeks we're going to see even more being baptized and taking their next steps. And so, God, I just pray that as a church you would help us to continually be focused on the gospel, on truth, and on reaching the most number of people with that truth. Father, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.